to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the recent passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, also going to be having a deep dive into the truth behind this accusation between 15,000 protesters sentenced to death in Iran and much, much more. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, here we go again with a divided Congress under a Democratic president who actually had a Democratic Congress until the midterms. For two whole years, Biden's party controlled the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. And in that time, he could very well have fulfilled some of those campaign promises that people voted for him to get. But no, he sought bipartisanship and tried to negotiate with the Republicans, so we got nothing. Of course, the truth is that Biden was never going to give us anything. All the promises and barely coherent tough talk about the intransigent GOP members and the right wing Democrats blocking his agenda. It was all just theater. It was all political theater that he had to put on at least until the midterms. When I think Biden knew doggone well that the Democrats would lose one of the chambers of Congress. So it has happened. The GOP now has a very slim majority in the House with the Democrats keeping control of the Senate and U.S. media is talking about a divided Congress. Y'all, the Congress of millionaires is not divided in their collective agenda to keep the wealth of the people flowing from the workers to the one percent. They are not divided on making sure that corporate oligarchs keep all the loopholes and tax breaks and special perks they need to keep their hoarded wealth and rake in even more at the expense of workers and the poor struggling to afford to feed, house and clothe their families every day. No, this Congress of millionaires is united in their collective agenda to keep their rich friends rich so they themselves can remain rich which means they are also not divided about depriving you and me and every working class and poor American the human rights we deserve to live whole, meaningful lives. Things like health care, housing, education, living wages, comprehensive benefits, adequate leisure time so we can enjoy our families and fulfill our personal desires outside of the endless, ceaseless, crushing work that many of us have to perform just to make ends meet. You know, like the rich people who steal our money get to have, even though they haven't worked for a dime of what they hoard. I know I sound extra cynical today, but it's hard not to be when I look at even the very important legislation to codify same-sex marriage that is actually advanced to a vote in the Senate. The Respect for Marriage Act is an important step in codifying marriage equality, I think, although I remain very skeptical of the details still, and if it actually will codify marriage equality. But this bill was something that the Democrats could have voted on before the midterms and could have had that win to campaign on. They could have said to LGBTQ plus voters that their rights were important enough to protect immediately. But the Democrats decided to play politics with the human rights of LGBTQ plus people and hold off on voting for the bill until after the midterms. 
Having retained control of the Senate, Biden and the Democrats are celebrating the Bipartisan Respect for Marriage Act as it seems poised to pass in the Senate when the truth be told they could have done this months ago and they just chose not to. And I think that's foul. But this is not the first time we've been subjected to this kind of political shell game with the Democrats. The same kind of thing happened during President Barack Obama's first term when Joe Biden was vice president. Like Biden, Obama entered the presidency with Democrats in full control of Congress until Republicans won the House in his first midterms as Democrats held the Senate. Obama and the Democrats blamed the intransigent Republicans for blocking his agenda after the midterms, but he had two whole years to accomplish nearly whatever he wanted before those midterms. People don't want to admit that Obama and the Democrats just did not want to accomplish much for the people in that two years and went right along with blaming Republicans. Biden is hoping that people will do the same with the rest of his first term. Please don't keep falling for the Democrats' shell game here. And now that the GOP does have a slim majority in the House, expect plenty of investigations as revenge for the bipartisan committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Oh, the GOP won't say that's why they're queuing up their own investigations into all things Democratic, but that's really why they're going to do them. And I can't say that all of them aren't necessary either. And I feel a little weird and a little bit dirty saying that. Expect to see some kind of investigations into things like the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, allegations of politicization at the Justice Department, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, all of which I think are a waste of time. And we actually already have the answers to these issues. We know where COVID-19 came from, regardless of how badly people want to make it a virus that escaped a lab. Of course, there's politicization at the Justice Department. Yes, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a three-ring circus on fire. There you go. Those investigations wrapped up in a nutshell. But the one I'm interested in is the alleged investigation into the business dealings of the president's son, Hunter Biden, two years before a potential Biden reelection bid. Republicans allege that Hunter Biden has used his father's successful political career to enrich himself. He joined the board of a Ukrainian natural gas company in 2019 and an investment firm he co-founded helped a Chinese firm buy a Congolese cobalt mine from a U.S. company in 2016, among other shady financial endeavors. I say that the information that could be exposed in this investigation could provide the clues to the coup in Ukraine in 2014. But honestly, even if it doesn't, I'm going to enjoy watching the GOP make Biden, both of them, Joe and Hunter, squirm as the spotlight will finally be cast on the scandal that Joe Biden wanted so badly to push into the shadows. I do feel a little icky thinking that the GOP might do something useful, but just because I feel icky about it, it doesn't mean they're wrong this time. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. 
And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined in studio by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Archukina. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Morgan, this week, the Senate advanced the Respect for Marriage Act, which would uh, actually enshrine marriage equality into federal law, reportedly. And this, of course, would clear the way for the final passage of the bill. Now, this was a 62 to 37 vote that saw 12 Republicans join all 50 members of the Democratic caucus to vote in support of the bill. Uh, President Biden uh, spoke on this saying, quote, love is love and Americans should have the right to marry the person they love. Today's bipartisan vote brings the United States one step closer to protecting that law. And so, Morgan, I really wanted to try to get into kind of the the nitty gritty for what the Respect for Marriage Act actually does and what it doesn't do. And, you know, uh, why you think uh, uh, the Democrats are sort of making a point to uh, uh, make this move now. Yeah, well, you know, I guess Biden Biden used the right words. He said it's a step towards protecting marriage equality because it's not it's been widely reported as it's going to codify Obergefell versus Hodges, which was the 2015 Supreme Court ruling that um, legalized gay marriage nationwide. And that is not what the bill does anymore um, in so we have to to understand this. We have to go back to June and the Dobbs ruling, and then you know, in um, in his concurring opinion, Justice Thomas was like, "We might, you know, these other rights might also be on the chopping block." Basically, and one of those was marriage equality. And so Democrats came out of that and then went to try and uh, pass the Respect for Marriage Act. Kind of, it was intended to be a symbolic statement. It turned out that actually 47 Republicans voted with them and it passed the House. And they were like, oh, maybe we can actually do something with this. Uh, and then I think I think I came on on this show when they were t- in September when they were like, oh, actually, we're not going to try and vote on this in the Senate. We're going to delay the vote until after the election, which they've now done. But they didn't just delay it. They they also modified the bill and the bill no longer protects marriage equality. <laughs> what it does is it repeals the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a 1996 law, and that means that uh, same-gender couples can't be denied federal benefits anymore. Mm-hmm. However, it does not make marriage equality the law of the land at the federal level. So the basic problem of if the Supreme Court overturns Obergefell, um, the 29 states that have explicit like laws or consti- you know lines in their constitution banning same gender marriage will uh, will still reactivate just like the pre row abortion bans did after Dobbs. So the fundamental problem, the reason they did this, is actually not addressed in this bill, and that's because what they did was they decided well we're going to win over the Republicans by compromising on the issue and introducing protections for religious-based discrimination by, like, religious nonprofits, churches, and things like that, that allows them to refuse service to same-gender couples now, including providing marriages, you know, to doing marriages, um, which was always kind of the GOP's angle on, like, their alternative to the Equality Act, their alternative to the Respect for Marriage, was one that were like, well, you have to allow us to discriminate still, you know, on a certain level. And, like, in this country— that's the main driver of anti-LGBTQ discrimination is this is a religious based one. It's the religious institutions. So if you're still allowing that, you're still allowing most of the discrimination to happen. So it's kind of it's a really, really watered down 
bill. But it is, yeah, it's a step. I'll give them that. It's a step. Yeah, and, and the fact, Morgan, that the Democrats chose not to vote for the previous version of this bill in the Senate, I think that speaks volumes to how the Democrats do business when it comes to actually protecting human rights of all people. Because I, I feel like if they were really serious about protecting people's human rights and if they were really serious about actually winning in the midterm, they would have fought for this legislation before the midterms. And they would have been able to say going into the midterms, we fought, even if they weren't able to get something passed in, in its original form, we fought for uh, marriage equality. And look, we did it because it was the right thing to do. We didn't want to wait at the right time. Um, so, but, but we weren't able to do it. But what if they were able to, right? They would have been able to go into the midterms say, telling people your human rights being protected are important enough for us to throw politics out the window and just do what's right. What does it say to the LGBTQ plus community that the party that's supposed to be so much better than the GOP on these issues of human rights was basically comfortable enough saying to them, your human rights are a mere matter of politics to us. It's not life or death. It's not, these aren't even human rights. We can we can do this shell game of politics and just trust us. Everything will work out fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of a game to them, right? It's just kind of wheel and deal. What can we get done? Whatever. And I mean, I think it, it's really, it really sends a message that, um, and they were very vocal about this, about like, we want to postpone it until after the election so that, uh, so that, you know, the Republicans that we want to vote for it, but also the Democrats who are going to vote for it won't have that on their record when they go to voters, you know, and ask for the vote in November, which to me says, OK, the, I mean, the thing is that we know from surveys that like the vast majority of Democrats and Republicans, people in this country, 70 percent of the people in this country support marriage equality. So it's not a hard issue to run on. But they decided that it was going to be a risk. And the, the other thing, I mean, the thing is they had a majority in September, right? Just like they had a majority to pass the um, Women's Health Care Protection Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, you know, um, a lot of Biden's, you know, strong climate agenda, you know, parent paid child leave and all that, or, um, you know, all these benefits and stuff. But they decided that to do that would, would mean to get rid of the filibuster, this, this, this racist rule used to defend white supremacy, used to defend slave owners and, and Jim Crow, that is just a rule that the Senate made up because they wanted to, because they don't like democracy, to be quite frank. They decided preserving that was more important than passing this. And so that's kind of the balance of it, right? They said, we don't want to be, have it on our record that we voted, you know, to defend the rights of gay people and also, the, and also interracial marriages. This is also, uh, this is also an, affects interracial marriages. And we want to preserve the filibuster, you know? So, so it's like, that's what's important to them. And our rights are not what's important. They want to, they want to, they want to play these games. Yeah, and see, that's what continues to strike me, Morgan, even knowing the character of the Democrat Party as, you know, uh, kind of the, the liberal wing of the ruling class, at least nominally, about how they're always, always, always 
willing to throw the interest and frankly the lives of the LGBTQ community right under the bus for the sake of political expediency. And this is not the first time where we've seen an example of Democrats seemingly being more concerned about their dynamic with Republicans than the lives and conditions of this uh, uh, oppressed and exploited group in this country. And it, I think, also shows a kind of trickle-down effect because, as we've been saying on the show, and like what many people have uh, been mentioning in a lot of different spaces, is if the Democrats use their power to codify things like a row into law instead of uh, playing these ridiculous games, well, then we wouldn't even be faced with this issue. The, these rights wouldn't even be um, under threat. But because they value political expediency over people's literal lives, this is what we uh, uh, continue to see. And from my perspective, Morgan, I don't think we can necessarily count on uh, the Democrats to sort of do the right thing in the broadest sense as it pertains to these issues, despite what they may say and despite, you know, all the celebration they're having over this um, being passed. Certainly, we know that uh, the Republicans, they're openly reactionary, openly anti-LGBTQ in their stances. So what I think that's going to mean is that it will take a movement outside of uh, the political mainstream to really fight for LGBTQ liberation as uh, we see that those in power simply refuse. Yeah. You know, what I think of, and I think of this every election, is we're told, right, that the the this is the most important election of our lifetime, right? And that's kind of, you know, they fundraise on, we got to, you know, defend abortion. We got to defend LGBTQ rights. We got to defend, uh, you know, everything out of the, everything that they mention, you know, and, um, and, and I think about way back in, I think it was 1967 or 1968, there was an article written by um, a, a left-wing um, um, kind of commentator named Hal Draper uh, called Who Will Be the Lesser Evil in 1968, you know? And it lays out the exact same game that the Democrats play now. They were playing in 1968. They've been playing it ever since they decided to, you know, bow before the massive popular movements demanding black equality, demanding women's equality, uh, and, and, and all the other liberation movements of that time when there were millions of Americans in the streets in motion. Uh, and ever since then, they've kind of tried to cast themselves as, well, we're the only thing standing between you and the loss of those Rights, and that's what they run on, and that's the game that they play, right? And and we've seen how I think abortion is kind of the the perfect example. Um, although you could also talk about you know the Voting Rights Act and how they let that get basically destroyed in 2013. But, you know, they had 40 years, 50 years since Roe to codify that into law when they had majorities and they had absolute ability to do that. And they decided not to do that. And, you know, immediately we get this, you know, the email from Nancy Pelosi, help us fundraise, you know, for November, right. you know, or whatever. And, and it's like that's the game they play because, like Jackie said, it's a game to them. And, and so it, we really need to you know, have an independent movement that is fighting outside of 
of these two ruling class parties who are trying to play the good cop, bad cop game with us if we're actually going to defend our rights to say nothing of expanding them. You know, we, there, there wasn't a time where we all had perfect rights and we've now begun to lose them. We were always in the fight to secure you know, our basic rights, um, some of the most basic rights is, you know, the right to, to relate to whom you want to and, the, you know, the right to marry who you want to and the right to, to, to live. And, uh, and, and we see those things under attack across, across the board. So we absolutely need an independent political movement that is not wedded to these ruling class donors, to these ruling class politics, that is not going to play this wheel and deal game and is going to, you know, knuckle down and, and really fight for people's rights. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, you're so right in what you're talking about in terms of abortion and these marriage rights and voting rights, all of these things that one would think that uh, the Democrat Party would be championing. And we're having this conversation in a moment where the Republicans, as a part of this far right assault on uh, uh, basic Democratic rights, are even going after uh, uh, the institution of one person, one vote, which is seen as kind of the bedrock of uh, the liberal democracy inside the United States. So if Democrats won't even fight for that, then I don't think we can expect much on these other issues. So, I mean, that's the bad news. But the good news is precisely what we're talking about here is the idea that uh, the masses of people who understand that this is a problem uh, to say nothing of of the people who this uh, affects directly, I think, understand clearly the ongoing need uh, to really fight for these things. And as such, I think that uh, uh, creates a problem promising potential for just that kind of movement. But we want to thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about regime change propaganda being aimed at Iran. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Syed Masafa Hoshes, Senior Foreign Policy Analyst and Public Diplomacy Strategist. Syed, thanks so much for joining us. Hello and thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Syed, uh, media platforms and social media has been ablaze uh, over the last uh, few days over reports that 15,000 protesters had been sentenced to death in Iran uh, following a street protest and riots that had been happening ever since the death of uh, a young woman named Masa Amini. And there's a narrative that says that uh, this woman was a uh, killed by uh, Iranian police uh, because of uh, her hijab or perhaps her refusal to wear it. There are other sort of ideas that she may have actually fainted. I mean, it's still, I think, somewhat murky about what happened to this young woman. But be that as it may, this idea about the uh, 15,000 protesters being sentenced to death um, was amplified uh, by major American uh, celebrities like uh, popular actress Viola Davis, Peter Frampton, even Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau 
uh, uh, was promoting this as well. But this whole uh, narrative really seems like it actually emerges from uh, the U.S. regime change machine and is not, in fact, uh, based in reality or truth. And so to begin, Syed, could you help us understand where did this uh, uh, idea come from about the 15,000 protesters being sentenced to death? And uh, what do you think is motivating this? Well, um, when I first heard it uh, on, on uh, American media, um, and then by the French president, Mr. Macron, uh, uh, it reminded me of Goebbels, um, um, you know, lying machine, propaganda machine, because uh, it's such a big lie that, that I don't believe that there is uh, any state, any country in the world that would do any such a thing. Um, well, it comes from first a statement by Iranian parliamentarians uh, who asked the government to stop soft treatment of riots in Iran, because there is a major difference between rioting and protest. Protest is a constitutional right. Iranians revolted back in 1979 because they couldn't do any kind of protest like the retired class, the teachers, the workers, they had no right of protest. So they revolted against the Shah and the Pahlavi regime. They toppled the Pahlavi regime. And one of the main issues that was included in the new constitution was the right of protest, freedom of protest and freedom of expression. So ever since uh, uh, then, there have been uh, daily and weekly protests across Iran for, uh, you know, uh, economic grievances like the teachers, like the workers, and they've been free and nobody has, uh, you know, uh, uh, clamped down on such protests. But as soon as uh, uh, we are in a, a war of uh, willpower against the United States in the talks, or the U.S. wants to exert pressure, it starts using uh, opposition, armed opposition of the Islamic Republic, as well as uh, uh, other opposition groups and separatist groups to enhance the, these uh, very legitimate protests into rioting. And this time, when the Iranian uh, law enforcement and the police uh, was somehow uh, uh, treating the, the rioting's uh, uh, softly, uh, so the Iranian people, many Iranians, millions uh, who can see that the country's stability could be undermined or their economic conditions could come under impact by such uh, protests by just a few thousand people, not uh, not millions, but a few thousand. So they, were start, they started asking parliamentarians to issue statement for a uh, harder, uh, you know, a confrontation against the rioters who had set the fire on policemen, on the Holy Quran, on mosques, on ambulances, on Evan prison, that there was a terror attack in a religious, at this religious center in southern Iran, Shah Jarrah. I don't know if you have heard of it or not. Anyway, then the parliamentarians issued a statement only calling for a tougher confrontation against rioters. And that's it. Then one of the main uh, American media outlets started uh, promulgating lies about it. First, they said that this statement has called for execution of all that have been arrested, like 15,000 people. First of all, uh, there have not been 15,000 people arrested and in jail now. 
to be uh, executed in a second place. Uh, um, this, this is a big lie. And the, the uh, media outlets abroad, they don't have the numbers at all. Actually, they've been uh, uh, repeating the same lies again and again. After uh, one of the media outlets in the U.S., then, as you just mentioned, celebrities step forward to repeat the same lie that Iran intends to hang everyone it has arrested. Then Macaron, Justin Trudeau, and many others, uh, you know, that they do went for, for saying, telling the same lie. So a lie opens its place and is is recorded is 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 you know uh, 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 in 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 the minds of the people, the public opinion all across the world, inside and outside Iran. If it is repeated enough, like the last time, like three years ago, when there was rioting. Um, uh, in a very few number of towns, small towns near Tehran, then uh, uh, the Reuters uh, news agency um, uh, claimed, without any you know uh, named and specific sources, they claimed that 1,500 people have been killed in the in in, in those uh, riots three years ago, and then. Amnesty International, many American media outlets, Persian language, uh, U.S. or U.K.-based opposition TV channels uh, repeatedly said that, I mean, some, some of them were repeating the same lies like 20 times a day that Iran has killed some 1,500 people in those riots, and they never, ever presented even a shred of evidence to uh, provide proof to corroborate their claims. So now, uh, after three years, they still continue the same lies. And rather than proving uh, the, their claims, they are asking Iran to present claims that it has not killed 1,500 people. So this whole project that started uh, two months ago, uh, that, that this uh, current rate, uh, round of rioting, it is all a media campaign, a propaganda campaign. Some 70% of it is uh, media warfare, soft warfare, but 30% of it is true. There are a few thousand people doing riots. And very recently, like in the last two days, they have started, I mean, terrorists have started uh, opening fire on the people, on security forces, just last night, nearly uh, seven, eight people, or even uh, more, including in Tehran, 10 people were martyred by the terrorists firing in front of everyone's eyes. Uh, like four or five were besieged uh, or police members, security forces, who were among the crowd when terrorists opened fire on everyone. But they are all blind to such crimes, and they blame it on the Iranian security forces, I mean, the opposition, the United States, because of uh, very specific objectives. You know, Saeed, I think a lot of the uh, ability for these kinds of lies to uh, propagate so quickly uh, in the United States and, and in the West is because 
we don't know how the Iranian government is set up. We don't know anything about Iran other than what we're told by the State Department here in the U.S. and, you know, by uh, the U.K. government uh, and, and, and other European nations' governments that are all uh, uh, in league with the U.S. in opposition to Iran. So can you explain to us why this idea that uh, uh uh, uh, politicians in uh, Tehran, uh, specifically the Iranian parliament, couldn't have issued this uh, death sentence for 15,000 protesters. Why, why is that just something that could not happen in Iran? Well, first of all, um, you, you, start, you, you talked about, uh, you know, a problem that uh, is very much prevalent whenever it comes to Iran. There's a problem with Iran. The flow of information is uh, one-sided. Uh, it's the empire of the U.S.-ruled media outlets uh, targeting Iran. It's true. I do agree with that. But part of it also, should I always uh, blame it on my own country as well, because they have not developed media outlets, uh, English media outlets, enough to, uh, you know, uh, fight this kind of narrative that has been prevalent all across the West and in many other countries. Um, there, there was only press TV that has been banned in the UK and across Europe, and it, it's come under uh, sanctions very recently in Canada, in the United States, in the UK, and elsewhere. They do not allow them to operate. They do not. Uh, I mean, in the UK and Europe, they even issued, uh, you know, some kind of sanctions very recently to seize their assets. So they do not allow Iranian channel, or in, the only English channel, to operate and to tell the truth about the country or to inform the people about what's going on in Iran. But uh, it is also partly, at least, should be blamed on us uh, to have been slow in developing English language and other uh, languages channels. Uh, well, definitely, <clears throat> we have not arrested uh, 15,000 people uh, uh, because uh, uh, these days, in the most uh, crowded uh, days of protests, you may not see more than 10,000 people, 6,000, sometimes 1,000, all across the country, and they are still out. All, only those uh, are arrested and held that uh, are proved to be operating for the uh, MKO, Mujahideen Akhal uh, terrorist group. It's also called PMI, NCRI, NEK, uh, or National Resistance of Council of Resistance, and uh, different names. They've been labeled as a terrorist group by the US, by the UK, by uh, the European Union until. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Obama started uh, pressuring Iran to join the talks over the nuclear industries and progress that it has had. So they struck off the name of the NKO from the terrorist uh, lists of the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, uh, some others uh, are from the monarchists who have been very much expressive about their regime change uh, strategies. Uh, and also separatist, especially Kurdish separatist groups uh, who acknowledge in an interview, very recent interview with CNN, they acknowledge that they have been trained by the United States in Iraq's Kurdistan province to have operations 
in Iran, and they acknowledge themselves that they have been conducting armed uh, uh, missions, successful ones, in recent weeks during the unrest on Iranian soil in Iran's Kurdistan province and returned to their base in Arbil. So, uh, except for uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, 2,000, 1,000, or a few thousand of such operatives, terrorists, sabotage elements, uh, no one else has been arrested and held. Of course, some have been detained. Many have, of them have been released, but, but a few thousand have been uh, uh, jailed, not 14, not 15,000 people that they claim. Uh, secondly, uh, they are being given fair trials. So far, uh, three people have been handed death sentences for killing policemen, killing uh, law enforcement and security officers, as well as uh, doing terrorist uh, uh, moves like uh, what happened in Shah Jarrah, like uh, uh, yesterday in many cities, uh, there were terrorist operations firing at the security, besiege, IRGC, as well as uh, civilians. Only three have been given a death sentences in initial courts. They have the right to plea. They're, they have been given fair trial. They have had lawyers all in all, all the judicial processing, especially uh, at the court, and they definitely will file uh, uh, for a plea. And uh, in Iran, if you are to be given a death sentence, you need to go at least for three uh, rounds of checking. I mean, uh, uh, two more than uh, the initial court. The initial court is the first. The plea is the second. And in, and the Supreme Court should, uh, you know, uh, endorse the ruling. So there are three steps. All across this judicial processing, uh, the lawyer could call for, uh, you know, uh, uh, dismantlement uh, of the whole case to be uh, studied and tried uh, at another initial court. Under specific cases, lawyers have called for that, definitely. So there is a very detailed judicial processing in Iran for giving death sentence. And uh, if you just compare the death sentences that we have had in the last several years, you could find out that there has never ever been any year uh, that, that we have given several thousand death sentences to uh, anyone, I mean, to, 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 to the people for various reasons. Uh, for rioting or for any other reason, for killing, for murders, for uh, armed, uh, you know, robbery, for anything. Um, there, there, there has never ever been any such a record all throughout the history. But uh, 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 to to be more informed of that, we also have representatives at Human Rights Council and organization at the UN. Um, they are always open to inquiries. I mean, especially by the media. Um, the secretary uh, of uh, of Iran's human rights headquarters, Mr. Karibabadi, who is a deputy judiciary, uh, he was uh, in New York, I believe. Uh, he was having, uh, you know, a press conference with media. He explained about the current conditions in Iran just uh, in the last few days. He was in there. I don't know if he's still there or not. Uh, he would be more than uh, happy to explain it to the English language media. The Iranian embassy at the UN, of, of course, will also be there available to explain all the judicial processing, the numbers, the figures that have been arrested, those that uh, have been freed, those that are awaiting trial, 
the number of uh, death sentences issued. But definitely so far, uh, up until a few hours ago, uh, I'm definitely sure that there have been only three death sentences given by the initial course for the killing of police as well as the civilians. Yeah, I really appreciate that thorough breakdown of the sort of uh, uh, court process, if you will, in Iran, Syed, because like Jackie said, uh, we in the U.S., and uh, I would argue that the, the West as a whole is just uh, completely uh, ignorant of, of how these things really work, and I don't think that's on accident either. I believe that uh, our governments in Washington and the uh, corporate media platforms that take their cue from that government weaponize uh, the fact that uh, uh, Americans are ill-informed on this and use it to push these narratives. And one thing that I wanted to be sure to note that I actually uh, meant to talk about earlier is that uh, in a fact-checking piece that was published by The Cradle, they noted that even that figure of 15,000 protesters actually emanates from something called the Human Rights Activist News Agency, which is sort of the media wing of a group called Human Rights Activists in Iran, which receives funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a soft power regime change uh, 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 institution here in the United States that does just this kind of activity all over the world. And so as such, for those of us in the U.S., uh, I think it's good to have a healthy skepticism when we see uh, uh, the U.S. government and its media platforms promoting protests uh, in countries where uh, they're clearly uh, trying to sort of exact their own imperialist will. Well, we thank you so much, Syed, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the Republicans may fare in the next two years, which, of course, will be the next presidential election here in the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ryan Cooper, managing editor of The American Prospect. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, at this point, following the midterms in the United States, it seems that the Republicans are likely to win a majority of seats in the House. Now, there, of course, are still uh, races uh, to be run here, uh, you know, namely in places like Georgia, where they'll see a runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. There are also House races in uh, states like Colorado and California, where those Republican candidates are uh, uh, currently ahead. But uh, even still, uh, even if the Democrat, excuse me, even if Republicans are able to achieve this uh, majority in the House, it may be a turbulent two years for the party, particularly as we're already seeing tensions emerge around the question of uh, who the party's nominee for president will be in 2024. Now, of course, uh, former President Donald Trump recently announced his uh, intention 
person to uh, have a third bid for president. Uh, but there's also a wing of the party that's leaning towards a Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. And you published a piece about this, Ryan, in the American Prospect entitled Republicans are in for two years of hell. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down, you know, uh, why you think that is. And what are some of the, the deeper dynamics that uh, may make this period uh, more than a little difficult for Republicans? Yeah, so basically on the House side, you have the problem that, uh, you know, half the caucus is completely out of their minds. Um, You're already seeing this today with the House GOP official Twitter account tweeting out just stuff from the very bowels of, of Facebook insanity about Hunter Biden, about how, you know, Biden, uh, Joe Biden himself is maybe in those those leaked uh, sex tapes somehow that are, in, you know, just stuff that is incomprehensible if you're not uh, in the Fox News expanded universe. But because, you know, if and when they claim the majority, they're only going to have maybe three to five seats, something like that, uh, margin. And so they're going to need whoever's going to be speaker is going to need the votes of every single one of those almost. Those people, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boebert, should she win re-election, which looks like she probably will just barely. Those people are um, Kevin McCarthy, who's, who's running for, for uh, he's currently the House Minority Leader. He wants to be Speaker. He already insists that his uh, staff call him Speaker. He's wanted it for years. But he's going to have to pander to these people um, who not only want to say crazy stuff, they want him to divest himself of all of his authority as speaker. They want the committee chairs to, to have the power so that they can do investigations of, you know, Hunter Biden and Benghazi or whatever. And then on the presidential side, I mean, I think you basically laid it out. You know, Trump, I think the party's concluded with some justice that Trump was responsible for the loss, like the way they bear hugged him after he lost. He's very unpopular. Um, and yet, hitherto, nobody's been willing to challenge him for control of the party. He's uh, announced his presidential race, and nobody's attacking him yet. And the pattern before was, uh, you know, they would just sort of lay down uh, and do whatever he says. But if DeSantis wants to make a campaign, he's going to have to fight Trump. And I think that he's going to conclude there's no other option. And so it's just going to be a huge slugfest in the background of utter madness and chaos in in the House. Yeah, and Ryan, what happened with Donald Trump? Because, you know, this was someone who basically barnstormed uh, uh, the Republican Party and whose, you know, particular brand of uh, far-right conservatism, I would argue, has become uh, uh, the mainstream in the Republican Party, even if there are elements that uh, uh, are against him. And and I and I kind of felt like this, this trend was, was deepening when I saw Paul Ryan, of all people. He was the first prominent Republican that I saw state in unequivocal terms that he felt that if the Republicans choose Trump in 2024, that they will, in fact, lose. Now, uh, if if uh, in thinking about it, I, I feel like perhaps January 6th may uh, have been sort of uh, uh, the breaking point in a sense where we even saw some Republicans break with Trump, at least in the immediate aftermath of the attack. And even though in the time since, 
since Trump has obviously been sort of uh, uh, brought back into the fold and reintegrated into uh, the party apparatus, I just wonder if the ripple effects from that may be impacting uh, these tensions. Now, this is just, you know, my kind of theory of it. But I'm wondering what you think has happened uh, over this most recent period that has lowered the estimation of a Donald Trump uh, uh, in terms of opinions about him inside the Republican Party. I think there's just a sense that he's a loser. Uh, you know, like they ran all of these ultra Trumpy election deniers in a lot of swing states in Michigan and Arizona and Pennsylvania, and they lost almost all of them. A lot of them won at the in red states, but it's just that they would always win. And you know, I think they're they're they were expecting a big blowout. They that almost always happens in a new president's first midterm. Only a couple of times in history that it hasn't. And the embrace of these like fruitcake conspiracy people, um, it, it's it's bringing the party down. And I think there's a there's a sort of uh, they're they're the hackles on the back of their necks are standing up to think like oh if we double down and do Trump again, uh, then, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get rinsed in 2024. But, you know, it's, it's, it's all a question of can, can you pull it off? Um, you know, because the, like, you remember when the, uh, the tape came out in October, 2016, which had Trump, you know, just explicitly admitting to sexually assaulting people. Uh, and for about 10 minutes, the party was, they were, they were sort of distancing themselves from Trump, but then they, they just sort of, after a while, lost their nerve and went back to, you know, uh, doing whatever he says. And so, you know, I, it'll be a contest, I guess, between whether the party can see where, what's in its own best interest and whether they just do their sort of usual worm, uh, you know, uh, hide under a rock thing and hope that it all, it all just works out. Yeah, and this makes me wonder, like, what would the, the backlash be for, let's say, the Republican National Convention comes around and, you know, this this discontent that we're seeing in the Republican Party grows against Trump and he's not nominated. I mean, what does the blowback from that look like uh, in within the electorate of the GOP base, many of whom are still seemingly pretty loyal to Trump, I guess. It's hard to gauge, but it's clear that the establishment uh, wing of the Republican Party does does not want to continue with that relationship. So what, what does that blowback look like in regard to stability of the GOP, if that's even a thing um, that, that we should be concerned about, I guess. But I'm just curious what you think that would that would be like. Yeah, I guess there's sort of two two points on that. The 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 first one is that they they did try to do this in 2016. If you remember when he was first consolidating, uh, you know, the primary National Review had this big issue against Trump. Um, you know, all that all these donors they were trying to it's like anybody but Trump. He's got because he's going to lose. That's what they thought. Um, and you know, it just didn't work. It didn't work because Trump has a very organic connection to a lot of people who, you know, the, the most fervent voters in the Republican Party. And I think it's going to be pretty hard to divest them of that connection, especially if you're you don't have a someone with a compelling, you know, alternative. And that's the 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 other thing. Um, the second point, rather, is that 
you know, before Trump, they, they really didn't have, uh, you know, like, like the classic Republican set of policies really was a loser, you know, like, like deregulation and cutting taxes on the rich and, uh, you know, wars of aggression in the Middle East. Um, th- this was a disaster. You know, B- Bush is the the only Republican uh, to win a majority of the popular vote uh, for president since like 1989. Um, and if you don't have Trump with his weird connection to a bunch of very marginal voters and you're going to run someone like DeSantis, well, he ran well in Florida. But I think it is highly unlikely that his t- style of politics, which is the old, you know, uh, tax cuts and deregulation, plus just like fervent homophobia and transphobia. Um, and he's not a charismatic guy. He doesn't have the juice like Trump had, uh, has, or at least he used to have. Um, he's not a great, you know, sort of orator or whatever. He doesn't have that sort of charismatic demagogue spider sense that, that Trump does. And so, you know, if you're, if you're worried about, you know, winning or losing, you know, the, the other flip side of that equation is like, who else do they even have? Are they going to run one of these lizard people who, who uh, you know, managed to cling on in uh, red states? It's not obvious that, that they even uh, have a, a better candidate than that, at least in the, you know, one of national prominence at the moment. Yeah. You know, it really is interesting to sort of see this kind of um, uh, uh, tension within the Republican Party. I feel like it's it's not something that we see terribly often. And um, in talking about 2024, Ryan, I'm also wondering what you think about what the response may be from uh, uh, the Democrat side, because, you know, I mean, it seems to me that they just don't have like a deep pool of people that they could pull from to have a, a compelling ticket or at the very least, a compelling presidential candidate. And so uh, sort of that being the case, uh, that matched up against, you know, this uh, <laughs> this uh, jockeying for position that we're seeing inside the Republicans. I mean, what do you make of how, you know, uh, Democrats may be maneuvering in this moment as well? Yeah, that's a good question, because, you know, if 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 the party could have their druthers, I think they wouldn't run Biden. But if Biden decides to run again, there's no way that he'll be defeated in the primary. In fact, probably nobody serious would even try. Um, it's just so difficult to do. And when you do, you tear the party apart. I mean, look at 1980 when uh, Ted Kennedy tried to primary Jimmy Carter. Um, so I, I do think that they, they have a number of up-and-comers who, who would be pretty plausible candidates. You have uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois. You have uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Swing state governors who can win, you know, have a proven track record, and they're, you know, reasonably uh, uh, charismatic, and they have a good, you know, uh, a record of accomplishment. That's a classic, like, presidential uh, candidate, and I think either of them would be pretty strong, but you know, Biden would have to quit. And he's so old, you know, that, that, uh, I mean, he might die or he might get sick and just decide I can't run, but you know, it's a, it's kind of an open question. And if, and if he doesn't run, I don't think at all that it would just be handed to Kamala Harris because she's vice president. She would definitely run. She'd probably be a strong uh, candidate, but I think it would, you know, it would be a big contest. Um, her popularity numbers are just so bad uh, that that I would guess somebody else would end up on top. But it all depends on Biden. 
Yeah, and another thing I'm thinking about, uh, Ryan, as we're talking about the the Democrats, is their response to uh, uh, the midterm so far. Because, I mean, the feeling I got was that, you know, Biden and co um, were basically, you know, celebrating. They were jubilant over the fact that they didn't get, you know, completely washed uh, uh, in these midterms, which I also think maybe doesn't bode terribly well in terms of uh, uh, how they may be maneuvering in these uh, next couple of years as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty, uh, I think you could be cautiously optimistic. If there's not a big recession or something, you know, it's like like Obama lost, they lost bad in 2010, but then he, lost, he won in 2012. And if there had been fair congressional maps, he would have taken control of the House again and had another trifecta. Um, it was just because Republicans cheated with gerrymandering so badly that they gave themselves like a five-point handicap. But it's true that the House is a is a big question mark. The leadership there is very old. The heir apparent is Hakeem Jeffries, who the left does not like for good reason. And they just haven't cultivated anybody who, who has the sort of broad respect in the party that Pelosi does. And she's, you know, she's not going to last forever. Um, and if they can't, you know, find somebody who at least every faction of the party can get grudging buy-in, um, and, and Hakeem Jeffries is not that person, I don't think, then... You know, it's it, it could be kind of chaotic like it will be on the Republican side. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, November 17th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also listen to our show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave dot digital. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are streaming live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And at the top of the hour today, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the uh, Speaker of the House in the face of the Democrats uh, in the House for about two years, has said that she will step down from leadership, but does plan to remain in Congress. She said, quote, for me, the hour has come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I am grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Now, the way reports are looking at this moment, it sees as though Hakeem Jeffries uh, is the 
favorite to replace Pelosi, but I, I mean, to be frank, I mean, regardless of who uh, replaces her, certainly not sad to see her go. I think we can count on the same, you know, neoliberal uh, imperialist policies. Uh, point of fact, you can't hold that position if you uh, are not willing to hold that line. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Gloria Lariva, coordinator of the Cuban-Venezuela Solidarity Committee and co-founder of the Hotway Project, which you can check out at hotwayproject.org. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here in studio with you. Absolutely. It's great to have you in studio with us here, Gloria. And there's been uh, an interesting development as it pertains to the ongoing war in Ukraine, as we're seeing really for the first time a kind of public contradiction between the U.S. and the government of Ukraine. And namely, this is over the issue of the origin of the uh, missile that struck a Polish village uh, earlier this week, resulting in the death of two people. Now, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, basically jumped to proclaim this as, you know, uh, uh, the fault of Russia, as a serious escalation on the part of the Russian government and things like that. But not that long after, some questions uh, really started to arise about the origin of that uh, of those missiles. And uh, with some reports noting that uh, the missile very well may have been of Ukrainian origin. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden and Zelensky seem like they disagree on this point. Now, uh, a little earlier this week, Zelensky said that he had, quote, no doubt that the missile was not Ukrainian. And uh, Biden himself uh, was, was has said that it's unlikely that uh, Russia actually fired this missile. And when reporters asked him about Zelensky comments, he said, quote, that's not the evidence. Now, this was a potentially very serious moment, Gloria, right? Because after this missile strike and before at least some of the details started to emerge and it still appeared as as if it may have been a, a Russian missiles, there were people who were really pushing uh, for the Article 5 of uh, NATO, which would have been, you know, an incredible escalation would very well may have placed us in that kind of World War Three nightmare scenario. Certainly, this seems to be the thinking of uh, of Volodymyr Zelensky. And so to see this disagreement between Biden and Zelensky in public, I think is pretty noteworthy, particularly as we see a kind of divided house, if you will, in the Biden administration around the questions of a negotiated end to the war in Ukraine. And so certainly there's a lot that's bound up in that, but just wondering how you're considering it at this point. Yes. Well, you're right about the crisis that took place and the very possible, you know, in the hours that it was being reported on the development after the missile hit and the pieces and killed two people in Poland, <clears throat> that the Western powers were ready to jump onto Russia. But on the other hand, the, the somewhat restrained attitude of Biden was because the U.S. is not ready to be drawn directly into war with Russia, which would be required if they found that Russia hit Poland deliberately with a missile, which was, of course, not the case at all. And yet Zelensky, in by pushing it and pushing it, was frustrating some of the Western leaders who were saying, this is ridiculous. He has to stop. He's really on a roll. Zelensky has never made one single concession to the idea of a peace agreement, of a negotiations. He insists that 
Crimea will be returned and the LPR and DPR <clears throat> territories will become Ukraine once again. <clears throat> For anybody who looks at this situation, even the Western powers, I think they must know that's not possible. Russia will never accept Crimea being returned because that's the end of the Black Sea fleet. That's the end of their ability to defend themselves in Western Europe. So it continues. The war continues. And and yet Biden's reluctance to accept or refusal to accept Zelensky's line doesn't mean that, US, that the U.S. is pulling back. They continue to pour the weapons in, the big anti-aircraft, the the NATO powers are saying now we're going to strengthen their anti um, their air defense systems, which don't seem to be working right now. All this array of weapons does not seem to be working to protect them from Russian missile strikes, which have been quite intense in the last few days on the energy infrastructure. Yeah, and I think it's also noteworthy. We were mentioning on the uh, show yesterday that you know, uh, NATO and its secretary general, Jens Stoltenberg, is actually still blaming Russia, even though um, uh, quite literally uh, those were not their missiles that fell. And, you know, Gloria, I really feel like this is a moment where the proponents of peace have to really stand up, be seen, be heard and to really boldly make the claim that there must be an end to this war. Because we're, as time goes on, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to a a point of no return kind of moment. And as we've been discussing, it almost felt like we were already there after this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, missile dropping on Poland. But, and, you know, and I think that's an example of something a lot of people have been mentioning about the uh, uh, potential of, you know, accidental strikes and, and things like that, the longer things go on. But when we talk about the anti-war and anti-imperialist and, and pro-peace movement, particularly here in the United States, which had a hand along with NATO in, in instigating this war to begin with, at least in my humble opinion, uh, to really make the statement that this war must end and that there must be negotiations and not more escalations. So how do you see the role of uh, the peace movement in a moment like this where there is just so, so much that's on the line? Well, remember when the war broke out in February 24th that the hysteria was so great, so intense that um, nobody could could say anything in opposition. Even those uh, highly regarded liberal figures like John Mersheimer, um, who has a very good knowledge of what takes place in Europe and also Russia, he had to be silenced for a while. He was he was canceled for a while. Yep. And it's been months now. I think people are tiring. I don't think the hysteria is there in the public, certainly not. And that's why the Republican candidates, for example, some of them have said, if we win uh, power, that aid is going to stop. Now, I don't believe that because right away Mitch McConnell said, no, that's not happening. We're going to continue supporting Ukraine. They use it for political expediency to try to get votes. Uh, Both parties are for this war. And yet the public of the U.S. has been rather silent. In Europe, 
because they're more directly affected by the inflation, by the high, high energy prices and coming winter. We've seen protests that you have to really look for them, but they've been tens of thousands of people in Czech Republic, Mm. in Moldova, against the government, which is anti-Russia, in Paris, in other European cities, in Germany, for sure, uh, because they know that they are paying the price for the war. And they're wondering why are so many weapons, why so much war, when we are facing extremely high inflation and a cold, cold winter. Also, coupled with that, it's not just their own personal situation, but the threat of war, because they will be the first ones affected if it widens, if it deepens. In the U.S., it's a different story. The power of the media, the New York Times, which keeps churning, churning out these one-sided coverage. It's like everyone who dies is Russia's fault. In fact, today, Antony Blinken said, it, it doesn't matter Russia is ultimately responsible for what happened in Poland. Yeah. It's like everything sticks to Russia. But I do think there's some sentiments growing. That's why the Republicans felt they could say something. They could take advantage. And there will be a great peace, peace now gathering in New York City tomorrow on Saturday uh, at the People's Forum, which I will be at attending and listening to great Leaders such as anti-war leaders such as uh, Corbyn from British Parliament, <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn, and others too as well. From the Answer Coalition to Code Pink. And this I think we should look forward to. I think it's a start of what needs to be a mobilization in the street. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I definitely think that a mobilization in the streets demanding peace is precisely what's needed right now. I also look forward to uh, being in person at that uh, event at the People's Forum in New York, um, uh, uh, demanding uh, negotiations and not escalations. And, you know, this leads me to a different question, Gloria, about how the issue of the Ukraine war and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that's played out amongst the left in the U.S. Because what, what continues to strike me is how, you know, we have people who, you know, may call themselves progressives, even socialists, uh, communists, uh, revolutionaries, who fundamentally hold the same line as the U.S. government on this issue. So, and it's really... <laughs> Striking because, you know, being pro-peace and being anti-war, I thought was like, you know, progressive 101. That's like, you know, page one, chapter one of the handbook. Right. But yet we have uh, uh, people who uh, are sort of openly calling for a continuing of this aid to Ukraine in in furtherance of this war. And, uh, you know, there's a number of things that I sort of notice that that tend to go along with it. Uh, You know, these elements, they tend not to see what happened in Ukraine in 2014. They don't see that as a coup and they don't believe like the U.S. had any role in that. They also don't quite see that, you know, uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, having any role in instigating this. They're, you know, they're a part of this notion that nothing that happened before February 24th, 2022 is worth considering. Now, I, I find that personally to be unprincipled, cowardly. And in a moment like this, uh, uh, downright dangerous. 
And so why, Gloria, why do you see it as so important for us to make sure that we're being sort of clear and consistent and, you know, firm in what it is that we're putting forth as it pertains to this uh, issue in Ukraine, as there just seems to be a lot of confusion, you know, uh, uh, amongst those who you think would know better. Now, I also understand that, you know, uh, even in this 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 peace movement, this mobilization that we're saying needs to happen, everybody involved in that won't necessarily agree on every single solitary thing. But I think there's a difference between that and basically holding a line that puts you on the same side of imperialism. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And some of those groups have had similar positions in the past, whether it was Syria or the war in Yugoslavia when the U.S. NATO began bombing Yugoslavia in 1999, and they were on the other side, like cheering the fascist elements that the U.S. was supporting. The Some of the left, which should know better but doesn't, immediately after Russia sent troops into Ukraine, began calling, characterizing Russia as imperialist, that Russia was always had designs on Ukraine that wants to have returned to the empire, that uh, Russia's interested in expanding for territorial means and power, putting an equal sign with the United States, which is so false and so injurious to the anti-war movement. First, because the greatest responsibility for people in the U.S. is to oppose our own government, the source of the misery of the world. You only have to put a list list down all the people who have died in U.S. direct wars or proxy wars that the U.S. armed funded from Vietnam to Korea to even something most people don't even know about, the killing of a million communists in Indonesia and what took place after that, the repression, the million people who were like choking the rivers with their bodies, it was so intense, or Central America or Libya, and the disaster for African peoples by that war <clears throat> under a Democrat. So long story short, we have to understand that the greatest threat to peace in the world, as Martin Luther King said, is our own government. That has never, it has been true to this day and more intense. Definitely, definitely. Uh, the U.S. is today, as King called it then, uh, the greatest purveyor of violence on, you know, in the world. And that has not changed. Certainly it was true even before he said it then in 1968. And the question of imperialism, I think, is an important one, Gloria. And I agree that this is also sort of a point of, I think, some uh, confusion or ideological sort of uh, misunderstanding uh, uh, amongst certain uh, elements of the left here in the U.S. And so wh why is it important that we make the point that this is not an inter-imperialist conflict and that in truth, there's only one imperialist power involved here and that's the United States. Now, of course, a part of the problem is, <laughs> is if you say that Russia is not imperialist, then, uh, you know, you're accused of saying it's like heaven on earth. Because people are so, um, you know, in the U.S., we're so propagandized and indoctrinated with this uh, uh, Russophobia and really the demonization of any country that, that U.S. imperialism deems to be an enemy. But how do you see it as important to sort of make clear 
uh, uh, what imperialism actually is, number one, and then to sort of assert the point that, you know, looking at this as a war between two imperialist powers is just fundamentally incorrect. First, there's first of all, Lenin's description, because he was the one who really defined and made clear what imperialism is. He lived at the time of the dawn of imperialism. For U.S. imperialism, it began with the takeover of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Philippines, and Guam in Spain losing its territories. This is expansionism beyond borders of the U.S. Now, that doesn't discount the U.S. theft of half of Mexico in 1846. Certainly that was an expansionist war of aggression against Mexico. And, of course, the whole takeover of the United States, the genocide against Native people and the wealth that was created by slavery of black people. But certainly imperialism in 1898, when the U.S. took over those countries I mentioned, is because it was the need for the capitalists of the U.S. to reach another stage. It was where the profiteering, the the maximization of profit no longer could be confined into the U.S. borders and had to go abroad with, first, number one, territorial expansion, and what later became inter-imperialist wars of World War I and II, a fighting for territories in Africa, Asia, and even within Europe. The territorial expansion, the other is the merging and the power of the banking industry over in- industrial production. And that's what we see is that the banks really are call the shots economically. So the merger of banks and over industry, also the export of capital. Before, before imperialism, it was U.S. corporations would export sales to other countries, but that no longer was possible. It was necessary to export capital itself and establish U.S. capitalist operations around the world to maximize, again, profits. It's all about capitalism constantly seeking more and more profit, maximization of the rate of profit, and global domination. And this is really the roots of, as I said, World War I and II. That's why the, to talk about World War III is not just the scale of war, like massive war. It's imperialism once again. You look at Africa, for example. There's, I know you've spoken about it. The left media has spoken about it, of the U.S. characterizing China as trying to take over Africa. But what it really is, is the U.S., France, Britain, uh, wanting to get back into Africa more completely. There's a competition between the imperialists. And what they hate most of all is that China is actually providing development. That China, first of all, after coming out of this enormous historical poverty, where 800 million people, the vast majority, have come out to have lives of, um, you know, a pretty decent economic lives in China. Now China is able to help in development. Certainly it's beneficial to them too, but it's not on the same order. It is not imperialist. And Russia has only one base abroad. The U.S. has 800 bases that we know of. That's another part of imperialism is the expansion militarily and domination of the world. 
divide the world up as what happened, you know, with the carving up of Africa and um, the Middle East and Asia at the turn of the century, actually the end of the last century. So Russia and China have united together in common defense and proposing that by that defense against what was up until February 24th, unbridled marching to take every corner of the world that the U.S. thought they could. It's both countries saying, no, this is going to stop. We're going to defend our interests, our territories, and actually help the world in the, in the, in the, in the practice of this. So, I mean, you don't have to agree with everything that Russia is doing to understand that up until February 24th, when Russian troops went in and the planes and the bombs were on falling, up until then, many liberal uh, pundits in the U.S. were warning that a very dangerous point was coming. And they were highly critical of NATO and they were highly critical of the United States. The red line is being drawn. Putin has reason to protest Ukraine entering NATO. This is a direct threat. And even beyond the fact that the rest of Europe that had been overthrown from socialist countries was now taken into NATO, but Ukraine was the battering ram, was this dagger aimed at the heart of Russia. And so until the bombs from Russia began to fall, to defend itself as what it saw as an impending war by Ukraine, NATO against them, when it would be too late. That was their calculation. Russia said, we see this building. We've been warning. You better not let NATO. And when they go, promise that that Ukraine will not be part of NATO. And the U.S. says, no, 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 we won't. So until then, there was a lot of opposition in the U.S. But once, once that war started, the voice is silence. Now it's time for the people to speak up, for the people to speak out. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Gloria Lariva. And uh, Gloria, switching gears a little bit, although still uh, uh, relevant to our earlier discussion in terms of politics in the U.S., uh, it's being reported now that the Republicans have effectively won back control of the House, which uh, likely will uh, spell out a lot of, um, uh, uh, I don't even know if tension is the word, but clearly uh, uh, they'll want to be in place to try to uh, throttle or hamstring uh, uh, anything trying to be accomplished 
by the Biden administration within Congress. And this slim majority that uh, they're going to have, I think, is going to be about the sum total of this uh, predicted red wave that some thought was coming. Now, I should say that there are seven House races that remain uncalled, including in Colorado, uh, one in Alaska, uh, five in California, with Democrats leading in four of those. But even still, uh, uh, the Democrat, excuse me, the Republicans appear like they're about to hold this slim majority. And so I'm just sort of wondering what you think this means for the calculus of politics inside the uh, United States uh, in the coming period, Gloria, particularly, you know, in the next two years when we will once again uh, find ourselves in a, a presidential election season. And we've been talking on the show about how, you know, the results of this midterms show both uh, a rejection of uh, the far right program. And it also, I think, implies that uh, the electorate is is more progressive than uh, uh, the mainstream ruling class leadership. But, you know, given all of these uh, uh, different ructions and, you know, within the Republicans, like with Trump and, and DeSantis and, you know, the Democrats not, you know, still not putting forth uh, any kind of real uh, positive program that uh, would benefit the masses of poor and working people in this country. And I mean, we were just talking about uh, a moment ago the importance of a movement uh, in the cause of peace. But it seems that uh, a similar sort of uh, uh, element will be necessary here in uh, uh, the coming future as conditions continue to uh, worsen here inside the U.S. Yes, well, I think it was a, a shock to the Republicans first in these elections on November 8th how the vast majority, if not all the deniers, election deniers, those candidates who said if they lost, they would not accept the outcome, that it would be fraud. And they lost because the people were like, wait a minute, then why are you running? If that you're going to lose, you're not going to accept it. I, I think it was, it really st- struck people's sense of fairness. Like, what's the point of you running then if you're just going to say, or what's the point of us voting if you say you're just going to have to win no matter what. That was one loss of theirs. And they have to think, well, well, what do we do now? Because we lost. And on the other was this great turnout by the voters in four states on the issue of abortion rights from red state Kentucky, which failed in the attempt to further codify a ban on abortion. And it was rejected by the voters to, of course, a few months before in, on August 3rd, in Kansas of, again, standing up for the constitutional right to abortion. In California, 40 million people, it's a constitutional right to not only abortion, but contraceptives. Vermont, a vote of over 70%, again, on the same question. Michigan, another victory for abortion rights uh, for the people. So it's, it, I think that's very, very hopeful And that's why I think the Democrats won the seats that they won, although they lost in New York. That was a pretty surprising thing. But it wasn't because of the work of the Democrats. They were terrible in defending workers' rights. They they kind of forgot about abortion rights, even though in the beginning they were like objecting to the Supreme Court decision. So it's not by any virtue of theirs. And yet what is going to happen now in Congress is what is going to happen, for example, with funding on Ukraine. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, but soon to be the majority leader in, in the House, says 
Biden shouldn't expect a blank check on aid, continued aid to Ukraine. And a, a senior fellow at the American <clears throat> Institute, the American, uh, what is it? And the American Enterprise Institute said, well, that's just pandering. That's just talk by McCarthy because she knows and the Pentagon knows and the Republican leadership knows that they're not going to stop that endless sending of military aid to Ukraine. In fact, maybe they'll even increase it um, because the Pentagon's who commands here. And uh, the, the media is the Pentagon spokespeople, too. And even, as I said, Mitch McConnell said, oh, no, that aid's going to continue. It's just political expediency on their part. It's just like, which way is the wind blowing? Because we're going to do whatever we want anyway. People have no say in anything in this country. Questions are posed to them. And yet, if the people vote yes, then it doesn't matter what the, the politicians will do what they want. Although the votes on abortion rights is very critical. Yeah, definitely. And that's what really gets me about how uh, ruling class politics play out in the United States is there's always so much of it just feels like a dog and pony show. Like There's just so much uh, posturing and political theater when in reality, what what you're saying is correct, uh, Gloria, that ultimately they're going to do whatever they uh, want to do. I mean, yeah, they may say this or that for uh, uh, expediency, but we all know that both wings of the ruling class, the Democrats and the Republicans, are in lockstep when it comes to issues of promoting war and imperialism. And that's basically always the case. If they don't agree on anything else, they can agree on that. War is always bipartisan in this country. But what isn't bipartisan in this country and what doesn't get really any um, uh, uh, attention from these elements uh, is the plight of poor working and oppressed people in the United States. Because as you know, the price of everything continues to go up. The people of the U.S. continue to see their money going, uh, uh, being put over into Ukraine. And while they may have some sympathy uh, uh, for Ukraine, they also have sympathy for their own wallet. You know what I mean? And they're not getting any relief from uh, uh, either of the two ruling parties. And that's why I thought it was noteworthy, almost humorous, frankly, to see when when Donald Trump uh, uh, announced that he was going to be running again, that he tried to make himself out to be uh, like a champion of ruling people. Like he was, you know, there for the working man. You know, I mean, this is the image that he's cultivated amongst his base, which is pretty incredible. And, you know, I often wonder if... <laughs> You know, things like this happen, you know, in other countries, too. Like, like we're talking about Donald Trump, someone who has been a part of the, the public consciousness in the U.S. for decades. We've always known him as this rich, brash, real estate hustler, uh, you know, this kind of uh, flashy New York uh, kind of uh, image. He's a reality television star, a professional wrestling Hall of Famer. And to this day, the only political office he's ever held is president of the United States. And so not only did his policies contradict this uh, uh, working man uh, sort of uh, image, but I mean, his own class position, I think, sort of exposes that for the lie that it is. And the fact that in truth, he's really just a tool of the billionaires and millionaires who are a part of his whole ilk. Uh, you know what I mean? And so when we talk about sort of the class character 
of uh, politics in the U.S. as they're uh, uh, playing out right now, Gloria. It's clear that, you know, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans and that wing of the ruling class, they are deeply class conscious, right? They are very aware of their class interests and they understand that their class interests come at the expense of ours. And as such, we, we have to really be able to not only uh, uh, discuss this, but really be able to fight back for uh, uh, those, uh, uh, these resources and these rights that one part of the establishment wants to take away and that another part refuses to protect. Yes, and after the disaster of the four years of Trump and the policy or the failure of a policy to protect the people against COVID, which is really his policy was primarily led to the killing, the deaths of over 1 million people. It's like 1.3 million who've died in the U.S. It's a shocking number. And here the other night, when he declares his run for president again, he gets top billing. He gets every word he utters in this lengthy speech is shown on television, nationwide television, to pull the wool over people's eyes. And, you know, it's very sad because even people who suffered from his policies can get taken in by professional speechwriters who wrote his talk. They polished him up. They make sure that he spoke calmly and quieter. You know, his presentation was more calm. He wasn't uh, shouting like he did at times, but he still had the same extreme right wing, extreme racist presentation. Uh, and he's really a tool of the super rich. We have to remember that in 2017, his tax break for the rich lowered the corporate tax break, uh, tax rate from 36% to 21%. But what is also not known is it was reported in the New York Times that in the days after that was signed by him, lowering the tax rate for corporations to 21%, when it used to be 50, even 70% in the, 19, in the 1950s, was that many corporate lobbyists marched into the White House and effectively lowered what they actually paid the next year at 11%. That was the average. <clears throat> what happens when you have to run a government, when you have to provide services to the people, which are still very minimal? We don't have a national health care plan. What happens when the, the income uh, by the cutting of corporate taxes gets shut down? The workers have to pay through job losses, through hidden fees. You know, every time you go out and you get a parking ticket, you're paying for local government to operate. You pay for the increase in national parks. You pay for the degradation of the economy. You pay for the lack of in infrastructural improvements in this country. This country is falling apart infrastructurally, education-wise, everything, and no health care plan. Uh, the the amount of money that was provided for COVID during these two and a half years, almost, well, yeah, two and a half years now, there's no more money now for COVID. So like you're saying, the poverty, the Supreme Court ruling last October that people can be evicted, uh, that the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, cannot impose a an eviction on an eviction ban because that would affect the sacred right of property owners to their profits from, you know, gouging people for their rent or their mortgages. So we are facing not only inflation 
and increased rates where people's uh, possibility to buy a home is definitely out of reach and the cost of living, the cost of gas, everything. But we're facing a future, a very dismal future economically and the dismal future of the threat of this war. So it will be absolutely critical for people to make the connections between the domestic crisis at home and the war abroad, the war that the U.S. is financing and promoting. And just make those connections and say, we want peace, we want jobs, we want infrastructure, we want the environment protected, we need the people protected at home and abroad. Enough. And to take actually power into our own hands. And what I mean by that is not the January 6th kind of thing that we saw by these fascists who are getting their wrists slapped. But for the people to, the, for the unions to say, we're going to stop production. And not, um, another thing, by the way, is this great today, Thursday, is a national strike at Starbucks. A national coordinated strikes of mostly young people taking things into their hands at work and saying, we want a fair contract. We want a contract. We want better wages. We want better conditions. We want more workers hired so that we're not, you know, overworked. You, I think we're seeing a great, great wave of union activism by young people. Absolutely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Gloria Lariva is here as we continue. And Gloria, over the break, I was thinking about what you mentioned a moment ago about Donald Trump's criminal mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic in this country and how that set us on a path for a million deaths and what, frankly, is an ongoing uh, mishandling of uh, uh, the pandemic. I mean, you would think that it's, quote unquote, over simply because we don't hear any emphasis from it from uh, our government. And I was actually thinking just last night, just last night, about when we talk to uh, uh, later generations of young people about that early period of the coronavirus in the U.S. when it first broke out, like how could we ever hope to sufficiently communicate just the depth of panic and uncertainty and abandonment that people felt during that period because no one was telling us anything. There was, I I pointed this out a million times during that, there was no basic education program about what COVID was or how to deal with it or how it spreads. Certainly we didn't get support to the extent uh, that uh, we needed and things like that. And I maintain that that feeling of abandonment that was felt by 
the American people during that time uh, intensified the George Floyd protests, which were happening in the streets. Because we're talking about sort of two different contradictions of capitalism creating these conditions of uh, uh, suffering for so many people. So it's like, not only will you not take care of us in a pandemic, but we can still get shot and killed by cops like it's nothing. You know what I mean? And so during that period, we saw millions of people fill the streets, uh, young people. I mean, this was a youth-led, black-led, multiracial uh, movement that we saw that was really, really powerful. Certainly, we had it in D.C. and all over the country. And I would argue because of that, that's really the main reason we actually saw uh, the result that we got with Derek Chauvin, the racist cop that killed George Floyd. Right. And so that brings me to another point you made just before we went to break about power and the people taking power into their hands and uh, uh, having the ability to take hold of society. And this is. I think the important aspect of when we talk about class consciousness, because we know that it, it's labor, it's the workers, it's the people that, that make this society move, but they don't get justly compensated for that labor. And a lot of what they make actually goes right up into the pockets of this same small class of capitalists and wealthy people who need our exploitation so that they can live in the lap of luxury. And so what it says to me, Gloria, is that, you know, not only is the capitalist system the root of all of these issues, but ultimately we have to begin to ask some serious questions about what can we do to bring about a new society with a new system? How do we take power into our own hands, take our destiny into our own hands, uh, uh, dare to invent the future, as Thomas Sankara said, and to finally, finally bring about a situation in the United States where humanity is uh, uh, the ultimate priority and not, you know, the profits of the wealthy elite. You know what I mean? Well, Sean, I'm really glad that you mentioned the uprising after George Floyd was brutally murdered because it almost seems like ancient history. Right. And I say that because it's been two and a half years and we have to think back to the early days of the pandemic. Let's think about it. First of all, it was a shutdown. Everyone had to stay home. I'm in San Francisco. You had to have a mask outside or you could be fined or, you know, receive some reprisal. But people essentially stayed home because of this great fear. The deaths were rising quickly. And I thought, we'll never be able to protest again how's the movement going to work? And then May 25, when George Floyd is murdered, two months into the pandemic, these uprisings of millions of people in the street took place. Uh, and I would say safely because people were careful. That I think they were more conscious, the demonstrators, about the mask wearing. We didn't have the hope of a vaccine at the time. Right. It took almost a year. But it shows you that the repression is going to meet resistance, even in the hardest of times. And yet at that time, I, when people were uh, suffering no more work, uh, 
you could get unemployment, but it was minimal. The increase of the $600 a week, which was a, a, an amazing help. Not everybody got it because the lines were full and people had to wait for months and months if they got their unemployment. But still, the collapse of employment in the country brought a situation where without the order against evictions, a limited order against evictions, millions would be in the street instantly. And I thought to myself at the beginning, if the people are not able to take control of the right of housing and to exercise by all actions, tenant union, tenant strike in this country, by the time this pandemic is over, we'll be in worse shape than ever. And we are because the rents have gone skyrocketing in this pandemic. The wealth of the billionaires increased at the highest rate they could ever dream of. They couldn't imagine how rich they would be, from Bezos to Musk to the others. They know who they are. We know who they are. Paying no taxes. Amazon, Bezos paying no taxes. And, and so the, we've come out of the pandemic. I mean, it's not over for sure. But we've come out of the pandemic with the rich vastly richer and the working class far poorer. I, I think, though, that there's also, by the result of this November 8 election, people starting to say, when is this going to stop? At some point, they'll say, we can't take anymore. And start listening to all those people who've been saying, protest, protest, march. Unionize. Do what you can to resist fighting police brutality. The racism, I mean, the racism, the police killings never stopped, which the pandemic was a worldwide crisis. It was a catastrophe. The world together could have cooperated, could have worked with Cuban scientists who did a remarkable discovery and invention of three viruses, uh, vaccines. Cuba's record is incredible. And now you only have 10, 15, 10, 11 people every day who are COVID positive in that country because of the total vaccination. But if we can't arrest this crisis of health and work to arrest the catastrophe of the environment, the future of the planet is dire. It truly is. They're warning right now at the COP27, which is another dog and pony show, they're warning, certain leaders are saying, if we don't really arrest the the global warming, we're going to have an irreversible crisis in a few years. The pandemic showed we're not there yet. Yet we have the power. We have to think that everything that's done in this country, from building a home to building a bus, to providing health care, to teaching the children how to read and write. It is from the labor of the working class. Nothing runs without us. Bezos couldn't do a thing if people stopped working. And we have the power. I mean, you ask, what is the answer? I think the answer is socialism. I think the answer is looking at a country like Cuba, which has historical underdevelopment, a tiny island blockaded, a country of economic basic underdevelopment because of the blockade by the United States, but socially, politically, is number one. 
with no police shootings against the population. You have to look for a police because they're, they don't go around roaming the streets in their cop cars and robocop uniforms. You have a country of 98% literacy. You have a country of the lowest infant mortality rate in the whole hemisphere. And that's because it is a planned economy where the wealth belongs to the people. We're housing. I mean, look at all the housing we have in this country. I can walk around the streets of Washington. You do. You live here. And you see condos that are completely empty and people in the street. Northeast Washington. I see all these people, black women and men, standing out in the cold, you know, crowding a little bitty McDonald's up there by H Street, where I've gone a couple times this week, trying to get out of the cold and, and barely any money to buy a cup of coffee. And standing in the midst of empty condominiums. If every condominium was filled with a homeless family, there'd still be an abundance of empty apartments. Who makes those apartments? Sean, who makes them? The developers. No, who makes those apartments? Oh, the, the, the workers, they build them. Yeah. Yeah. Every element of a building is from the workers the glass, the carpets, the wall, the steel structure, the cement. The doors, the windows, only the workers make it. And we're made to feel we don't deserve it. Mm. Ah, you didn't work hard enough. Well, you should have gone to college. You should have gone into debt, you know, for some maybe job in the future. I don't think that that myth of capitalism being the answer for us is going to last too long. It's already coming apart. Already young people are joining socialist organizations. Definitely. And, you know, that actually reminded me of something I saw on uh, Twitter a little earlier from um, Nina Turner, you know, who, you know, is is fine with me. But she said, uh, if we have billions to send to Ukraine, we have the forty five point five billion to fund two year tuition free college. We can do both only when it comes to social programs to do some start asking, how are we going to pay for it? I mean, in my opinion, like uh we only we only really should do one of those, uh, preferably uh, the free tuition. And, and see, this is like the sort of the core contradiction that we see here in the U.S. And when you talk about, you know, homelessness uh, in the U.S. and in D.C., I mean, not that far from where from uh, Sputnik Studios over in McPherson Park. That's got to be one of the largest uh, homeless encampments in the city that, like a lot of the other encampments around town, have only exploded in size in the time since the pandemic. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they're actually the city is planning on clearing out that park soon, which they do uh, every time uh, a homeless encampment gets what they view as, quote unquote, too big. And I'm sure you you see a similar thing in San Francisco, where when you have this uh, uh, rapidly gentrifying city, well, then homeless people, these human beings that have no place to live, they're treated like an eyesore. And so the police are employed. Uh, uh, to displace them. Uh, th- there is a whole genre of architecture uh, <laughs> dedicated to making sure that homeless people cannot sit, lay down, or even hang about some of these places because they want to make sure that the people with the money to pay these sky-high rents feel comfortable living in these shiny new you know, box apartments that are just sitting there empty. Right. And I feel like I should also note that a lot of the new housing in D.C. is is luxury housing that has all this high rent and things like that. And so 
The city of D.C. and the United States as a country is increasingly becoming too expensive to live. And there comes a point where that just that the center will just not be able to hold. You can't have a country full of people, particularly even with people who are working, some of them, who have to give so much of the little income they have just to survive. And so that's why I think this uh, uh, the, the struggle for socialism in the U.S. is so important. And in our last couple of minutes, Gloria, I was hoping you could get into, you know, just what what you mean when you talk about socialism, because we're not just talking about a slate of progressive policy. We're talking about an entirely new society where the things that may seem, you know, impossible in this society are ensconced as a fundamental part of the next. You know what I mean? You hit the nail on the head, Sean, when you said, how will people, how will we pay for it? The question that people are taught to ask themselves, how will we pay for the social services like healthcare? You can even look at Europe. Many European countries have had a national healthcare system that people don't have to pay for, that it's provided for the whole population. But Those are under the gun, too. By socialism, first of all, someone like Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, another mouthpiece for capitalism, who owns Amazon, employing hundreds of thousands of workers who he won't even let have a union without a huge battle because his profits will never be enough. That's the nature of the capitalist. They will never, ever have enough nor do they think we deserve anything. He doesn't think he has to provide decent health care to the workers. And therefore, under socialism, all the wealth that these capitalists expropriate from our labor would instead be poured into society for people to have a very decent life, that you could not only have decent schooling that's free, but you would have every child be able to be encouraged to have music and culture and real participatory sports. That every disabled person would have all the technology necessary to live a decent life. That seniors, after their long years of work, wouldn't have to worry about did they save enough money to be able to pay rent or for a health catastrophe. And that instead of the few who have the money to pay $5,000 a month, to live in a senior home with decent care, that everyone would have a very hopeful retirement. Yeah, and absolutely. that's uh, that's what I think socialism is. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And the wild thing is, is that talking about having a, a decent standard of living for people in the U.S. is a radical idea right now. But you and I and everyone under the sound of our voice have to organize and fight for that new society. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Gloria Lariva, so much for joining us today. Back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.